Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hello, I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. I've got a good series of podcasts lined up, actually. After a few weeks off, I've got a a lot of podcasts lined up over the next few weeks. Next week, I've got a discussion with Dan Coyle, who was the author of The Culture Code. And I've revisited a discussion with him to, to ask him how we might think about workplace culture in in this new era of hybrid working. We're going to delve into some of the data that has been produced by the Future Forum, which is the organisation paid for by Slack that's really exploring how hybrid working is developing. So I've got a few, I've I've got uh, several episodes lined up, which I think are going to really delve into the themes that we're experiencing work right now. Today is something which is a bit more in the psychology realm. So it's more if you're interested in people watching or thinking about the mechanics of how people interact with each other, then I think you're going to find this truly fascinating. I recently read Will Storr's brilliant book, The Status Game, and I was so so taken with it. It's all about how we um, achieve social position, how we use it, how important it is for us. Will believes that status is a fundamental need for humans. You know, he says that we we pursue status with ferocity. We we uh, we aim relentlessly to to achieve it. So you know, it's a real big fascination for us. And in study after study, uh, it's found that our well being depends on the degree that we feel respected by other people. Sort of the the extent that we feel status. And uh, why I wanted to have a discussion is I wanted to ask Will how we might think about that in the world of work and how it impacts us. So if you're interested in psychology, if you're interested in people watching, I think you're going to find this a really intriguing uh, consideration because I think it forces us to think about things that we don't necessarily bring to the top of mind. Along the way, I wanted to pick his brain on these things, but I was also really intrigued in the aftermath of the Oscars to see if there was a status interpretation of the extraordinary events that we saw at the Oscars. And Will gives us just a brilliant take on that. So you're going to hear about how status impacts the likes of Vladimir Putin, how status impacts uh, the actions of Will Smith. It's such a brilliant discussion, such a fascinating discussion. If you like this, you'll definitely like Will's book, which is The Status Game. Uh, Out in hardback now, but it's out very shortly in paperback. If you enjoyed this, please do uh, share it with friends or sign up to the newsletter. But 
Let's go straight to my discussion with Will Storr, the author of The Status Quo. Will, thank you so much for joining me. I, I, I got in touch because I loved the book so much. Thank you. I'm so grateful for the chance to talk to you. No, no. Thanks for asking me on, Bruce. It's good to talk. Now, listen, you've written this book, which status game, which I guess the central conceit seems to be that there's almost no thing, nothing more important in life than status and that we're all in the stage of managing our status. And I guess some people might wince from that and question whether that's the case. So make the case. Why do you think life is a status game? Well, I wouldn't say, first of all, that there's nothing more important than status. But what I'm arguing is that, that status is one of those fundamental human needs. So, you know, our bodies need food and water and oxygen. Our minds need various things too. And one of the things that we need to be psychologically well is status. And what status is, sometimes people wince about status because they think, well, when you talk about status, what, what I mean is I want, people want to be rich and have expensive watches or be celebrities or whatever. But that's not what it means really. It just means fundamentally that you feel like a valued person, like the people around you. It's not just about belonging. So belonging and connection is one fundamental need. Separate from that is that we feel valued, that we feel of value to other people. And so there's a whole host of evidence that this is a sort of a basic fundamental human need, that, that when we feel that we're not valued, subconsciously, you know, the brain takes that as a signal of significant distress and we become stressed and unhappy and depressed and even physically unwell. And also it's a, it's a universal preoccupation subconsciously every single interaction we have socially we're measuring does this person value me am i being treated as a person of value and if we feel that we're not being treated as a person of value or of less value than other people then you know we naturally and automatically feel unhappy about that you know angry upset rejected all those things and it extends beyond just initial emotions I guess it, it extends into our well-being. It extends into our health. There's this health outcomes for for feeling like our status is diminished. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, there was an extraordinary set of studies that was done by by called Dr. Michael Marmot in Whitehall in the British Civil Service. So, so the British Civil Service is like highly stratified. It's you know very hierarchical. It's huge kind of hierarchy there. You know, massive organisation. And what he found was that the further you went down the hierarchy separate to income separate to other other kind of thing you know health indicators you, pe- people's health out- outcomes got worse the lower they got down the hierarchy so a smoker at the very top would have less chance of dying from from his or her smoking as the person one slot down the hierarchy these are by any estimation wealthy successful people but 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 the brain is so preoccupied with where we sit in the rankings of our life it was you know it was that kind of sensitive and they found this not only in the british civil service but in other places uh, they even found this in in monkeys they did, they did an experiments in the lab with baboons where they they, they found the same thing with tree in a baboon troop they've had all these baboons a terrible diet like a like you know domino's pizzas and whatever <laughs> like they deliberately <laughs> trusted you know it was as healthy as possible and, and to see you know who, who would get sick as a result of you know this terrible unhealthy delicious diet and they found just like in humans the people at the, the, the baboons at the top would be less likely to get sick from the one the baboon one beneath and then they conspired to alter the hierarchy and the health outcomes changed with the changes in the hierarchy. So, so they know that it, this is about hierarchy. So it's incredibly important. And, and we know now that where we sit in the hierarchy of life has significant you know, health outcomes. So that we're more likely to get sick and die earlier if we feel like we are deprived of status. Why is that? 
What, what, what does it trigger inside us? Well, it, what it triggers is a state of alarm. There's a field called social genomics, and social genomics is all about studying how our social lives, so the lives, you know, the, the life that we have socially at work, the life that we have with other people, how that affects the function of our genes. You know, certain of our genes switch on or switch off. What they think is that when we feel that we are kind of deprived of status, the brain reads that as a signal of distress, and it puts us into this state of inflammation, um, preparing us for potential injury and you know we, we are kind of designed we've evolved to be in a state of inflammation for a short period of time and what's bad for us is what they call chronic inflammation when we're, we're when we're in this kind of kind of semi-permanent state of inflammation that's not good for us and, and and makes us more likely to suffer from anything from you know cancer to you know various other you know unpleasant and potentially deadly um, conditions and it also lowers our antiviral response that's the kind of working theory as to why this is at the moment we're a tribal animal so we've evolved to to survive in the context of, of coalitions of other people and if the brain subconsciously reads that those coalitions don't see us as a, see us, us of value the brain thinks okay i'm in a dangerous place this environment is dangerous and you just set the body up to prepare for attack yeah the the bit that really brought this home to me was the extreme and you quote someone saying that humiliation is the nuclear bomb of emotions that actually when we are put in a situation where we have no status whatsoever or someone appears to try to um, undermine our our self-image and our status it seems to have this hugely injurious effect on our state state of mind to the extent that people who are responsible for murders are often or I guess you would you would explain this better than me, but I was really really taken with that part of what you wrote. Yeah, so when I, when I was looking into this and sort of considering it as a potential subject for a book, you know, that that was the big test for me. I thought, okay, if you're going to argue that status is so important, then it must be really bad that it, when it's taken away from us. Like, what happens? What you know? What does that look like? And so I looked into the literature and found this this extraordinary paper on humiliation, humiliation and its consequences. Psychologists define humiliation as it's not just the removal of our status; it's the removal of our status that's so sort of dramatic and total that that we are unable to claim status from that group in the future. So we're basically expelled from the group. It's so bad that we feel like completely humbled and w- worthless and unable to show our faces in that community any further it was just extraordinary when you actually look at humiliation and humiliation is is literally implicated in the very very worst of human behaviors uh, everything from serial killers to spree killers to honor killers to all the way up to genocide humiliation is implicated in all of that stuff so that, that was what really convinced me personally that status was was an extraordinarily important subject and, and it's an extraordinarily important component of the, of the kind of human condition the fact that when we feel humiliated when it's taken away from us in a dramatic and public and uh, seemingly extremely serious way it drives the very very worst of the things that we do as people because these complex to this isn't it it's not merely where we present ourselves on maybe a sort of classic hierarchy some people if i understand this rightly might try to create status by being the funny guy on social media or might try to create status by being the stylish person on instagram that it's all about the respect of your peers in the area you're trying to to engage that's right is so you you describe social media as a slot machine for status but i guess some people might say well i'm not bothered about status but dot 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 so so <laughs> yeah it's more yeah. nuanced than, than it is yeah yeah so everybody is bothered by status it is you know it, it, it's a, it, it's a universal preoccupation and the reason the book is called the status game is because the my argument is that, that that we 
we, we play multiple games for status at once. And the way that human beings work is that we are, you know, we experience the world symbolically. So, so we haven't evolved to crave money, but obviously lots of people do crave money. We've evolved to crave status. And, you know, money is lots of things, but one of the things that money is, 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 is a way that we measure status. So that's why, uh, you know, that's why, you know, billionaires, um, you know, get refunds on thing, you know, on, on, on Amazon deliveries that didn't turn up for, you know, 15 pounds, you know, they don't need the 15 pounds, but it's, it's a way that we measure status, but it's not the only way that we measure status. Like we, you know, we, we are incredibly imaginative creatures that, that live in these worlds of shared imagination and you can play all different kinds of status games. You know, like if you're in the kind of wellness space, you might measure your status by how little you care about money. You know, it could be the opposite thing. Like I've got a friend who's very proud of the fact that he drives a beaten up old car with a you know with a, whose wing mirror is um held on by masking tape even though he could afford a luxury you know suv the implication is that he doesn't care about status but he but he does he's just using that that beaten up old car has his own status symbol it's, it's his way of looking down his nose at other people he looks down his nose at people with a brand new mercedes a brand new bmw he's playing a different status game in his game you you measure your status by how little you seem to care about material worth and so as you say yeah you might you, you know comedians play a, a, a status game which is about who can make every, people laugh the most um it, uh, you know politics is a, is a game of who can be best at uh, expressing the beliefs and living by the beliefs the particular beliefs of that political group there are literally infinite status games that we can choose to play that's what human social life is that's what life outside the family is that's what we do you know, work is a status game. Politics is a status game. Um, social media is a status game. Wherever you see people behaving in a way that the more they behave this way, the higher they go up in a kind of status hierarchy. That's a status game. You know, the church is a status game. The more Catholic church, priests up to Pope, you know, that's a status game. So, so yeah, it kind of, that that's what connects cults to politics, to religion, to work. That's what we do. That's That's human social life. There was a really interesting framing that you gave about how populists really play into this. So if I understand right, populist politicians typically try to tell the audience that they're talking to that somehow other outgroup baddies have lowered their status and this populist leader is going to give them their status back. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. But it's not just populists in the sense of, you know, Brexiteers and Trump fanatics. It's, it's, that, that's just a basic way that, you know, leaders in status games manage to motivate people to fight on behalf of their group. It's a basic fundamental argument. This rival status game over here, let me explain first of all that the, 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 I think there's another sort of important component that, that, that your listeners should understand, and that's that we compete for status in two kind of realms at the same time. So we, we compete for status with with other players inside our status game. So if you're if the organisation for which you work is a status game, you're kind of competing with the other people in the, inside that organisation for promotion, you know, to move up that hierarchy. But also your your game is competing with rival games, so you can work for Apple and be competing with other Apple employees to be the best Apple employee or the best person in your, your department. Then, of course, Apple is also competing with Samsung. It's competing with Google. It's competing with Microsoft. Um, so, 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 so there are these two ways of th- that you're kind of competing all at once. A basic way that leaders motivate people is to say, look, this other group is stealing our status. It's not fair. And under my leadership, this group is going to earn more status 
and as the group, you know, the game earns more status. We all, as individuals, earn more status. So that that's the promise that all successful successful leaders essentially give. It's I'm under my charge. We're all going to get more status. Tell me how this, because it, it strikes me then that status has this big impact on our well-being. It has this big impact on our um, mental well-being, our psyche as well. That if most of us find ourselves in hierarchical organisations, which have uh, some some degree of, of management tyranny, yeah. and if we find ourselves at the bottom of that, d- does that by its very nature mean that work is toxic to a lot of us or do we learn to cope with it or do we learn to detach from it so being at the very bottom of a status hierarchy i would say you know is in inverted commas toxic in the sense that nobody wants to be there you know you don't have much power you don't have you don't have much influence um and it's just it just you know again it's a human universal it feels bad to be at the bottom that no matter where you go in the world, no matter your gender, your race, your, your age, uh, you know, you can go forward and backwards in time. Being at the bottom feels bad. That That's a fundamental human response. And that, again, it's, you know, it, I, I, I would say it's evidence that, of the, import, the universal importance of um, status. Within a large organization, there are lots of kind of smaller status games. You could say that everybody at Apple, for example, not, not everyone is competing with Tim Cook. And if they were, they'd be miserable and unhappy. How, how status games tend to work is we tend to compare ourselves to the people immediately around us, people in, in the office, the people that we're hanging out with. On the, on the day-to-day, that's how most of us you know, play these status games. Of course, you get um, super ambitious people who want to be Tim Cook. Uh, you know, they're a subset of the, you know, human family that, that, that really want to be, you know, the next big thing and the, the, the next world leader. And, you know, we need those people, those people that are, the, you know, are the ones that, that do go on and change the world, highly motivated, highly interested in status, those people. Uh, but that's not how, um, you know, that's not how most of us are most of the time. Most of the time we are um, competing with the people kind of immediately around us. Um, uh, and and I think that's the healthy, that's kind of the healthy, ordinary way that we play status games, all all this kind of neurological equipment, which is kind of, uh, you know, mediating the status game that evolved when we were living in, you know, in tribes and the, and the tribes are relatively small. And, and within those um, small tribes, the people that the, the which we'd be competing for status would be separated with gender. So, so traditionally in pre-modern societies, men competed with men and women competed with women, and there wasn't much crossover. So, and within the genders, age, you know, so you know, young compete with young, old compete with old, middle compete with middle middle age, and then you know, you've got different tasks and different you know roles. So, uh, a hunter would compete with a hunter. Uh, a tuba finder would compete with a tuba finder. A storyteller would compete with a storyteller to be the best storyteller. So it's sort of the kind of naturally forming status game is is always very small. And that, and that is always kind of how we tend to play as well. As I say, we, we compete with the people kind of immediately around us. So if you were to take, say, the people at the bottom of the hierarchy at Apple with the people who clean the offices, they're not going to be coming to work every day feeling miserable because they are um, not Tim Cook. They're going to be coming to work every day wanting to be the best office cleaner and they're going to be they're going to be you know feeling a bit rivalrous if they're motivated to do the job well which is you know another big if they're, they're going to be rivalrous with this other office cleaner that everyone thinks is the great the best office cleaner but i'm better than that office cleaner because because i saw them skipping a whole load of stuff in the uh it, you know in the, in the warehouse last week and i know that i do a better job of that you know that that, that that's the kind of that that's human nature we, we we tend to play you know we tend to play these close games and want to kind of 
best to the people immediately around us. There seems to be something really deep and psychological that goes to the heart of some of the games, to, to say something really obvious. But, you know, the, the, some people seem to fall into the trap of the need for spiralling status inflation, the need to yeah. constantly enhance their position, to keep acquiring, to, to keep demonstrating to others that they're succeeding. And then other people seem to be reconciled. They seem to sort of find a, a an equilibrium where they feel I've earned sufficient respect of others. Now, actually not being in other people's attention and eyes is more valuable to me. What determines those things? Um, pers- I think it's personality. A lot of it's genetic. Um, uh, and, you know, so I think, I think a lot of it's personality, you, you know, the extent to which we, you know, we, we, which we desire status, it sort of really comes into, it kicks into being in, in adolescence, you know, so, so, so people in adolescence, their brains start changing. You know, a big part of adolescence is that we start to play the status game you know, in an adult way, which is we start to be very, very preoccupied with what other people think of us. And that's why um, teenagers have this weird combination of being crazy risk takers, especially the, you know, male teenagers, crazy risk takers, but also very, very self-conscious and get embarrassed easily because it's, they're worried about status. They're trying to get it and they're acting crazy to try and get it. But then they're also very self-conscious and get very embarrassed very easily because they feel like, oh my God, you know, I've got this wrong. I've made a mistake. Everyone thinks I'm an idiot. So, 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 so that, so, so that begins in adolescence, you know, it kind of peaks adolescence, you know, in our twenties. I suspect that it, that our need for status declines when we get to a certain sort of 50s, 60s. I, I didn't, I hadn't seen any research that says that, but anecdotally, I think, it, that 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 seems kind of relatively likely, and I just think that there is definitely a certain kind of personality that values. It's, it's like anything, you know. You know, we, we have more or less need for status. We have more or less, you know, need for connection. Some people are happy with hardly any friends. Some people need loads of friends, and it's, and it's the same with status. And I think what this kind of journey has taught me, and it's you know one of the ways it's educated me, is to have have a kind of respect for those people because, especially as as a, as a kind of temperamentally left wing person. I have this kind of bias almost against, you know, really high achievers, people who, you know, want to push themselves in the public eye. But actually, those are the people that change the world. They might be quite annoying you know, to a lot of us. And you might be able to see through their behavior quite often in the sense they just want to get attention. But if they're playing the game well, rather than playing it in a kind of shallow way, if they're playing it in a shallow way, they're just trying to get attention for attention's sake. And of course, there are lots of people like that and they are annoying. But there are also people like the Elon Musks of this world who clearly has a very high need for status, uh, but the way he's doing it is by is by being as competent as he possibly can, by pushing himself and pushing himself and pushing himself, and he's changing the world and he's you know employing a large number of people and paying huge amounts of money in taxes and and and, and you know so it's it, it's people like him that I think that deserve gr- the grudging respect of his haters because it's people like him that are changing the world and a lot of it does come from this basic fundamental you know need for status. Yeah, well, I guess if status to some extent is twinned with showing off, then anyone who's ever loved any music or art ever, to some extent, has enjoyed the product of someone who's been showing off, been trying to earn status from <laughs> others, right? That's right. That That's exactly it. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the amount of musicians uh, who 
who start in their adolescence start playing the guitar in adolescence because they're just because because it's a good way of getting girls you know that, that that's how it often begins and then they end up being these huge you know world famous musicians that it, you know in, in the book i tell the story of the iphone the actual origin story of the iphone as recounted by scott forstall who was there from the from the get-go and he said what happened was that steve jobs encountered a microsoft executive at a party and this Microsoft executive was sort of shoving it in his face about, oh, we've solved computing, Steve. We've we've done it. We, you know, we've nailed it. We're going to make these tablets, and you've got this stylus, and you control the tablet with this stylus. You you know, we've we've solved computing. It is done. It is over. And so, of course, Steve Jobs is furious about this, livid, and he comes into he comes into the office on Monday morning with a set of expletives. And he's like, well, let's show this idiot how it's done. And it's like, how it's done, it isn't with a stylus, it's with your fingers. And that became a prototype iPad, which then beca- which was released as the iPhone first, then re-emerged as the iPad. And so that changed the world. And it, you know, obviously, the iPhone changed the world. It's, the, it's, the, it's, it's probably the invention of our lifetimes. And it all began with Steve Jobs, you know, a man extremely interested in, in the status of himself and his group. Uh, being ha- having his sense of status insulted by a man at a barbecue that's how it began the iphone so 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 that's you know that that's how this stuff genuinely changes the world you know we were talking before um you press record about putin and you know P- putin's sense of status and sense of um injury um, is, is changing the world in a negative sense at the moment you know we forget when we look at these great conflagrations like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they seem so huge and inexplicable. And we forget that they begin in the minds of people, often the minds of men, these violent, you know, uh, uh, incidents. And, you know, in Vladimir Putin, we can see somebody who is very chippy um, uh, about his own sense of status and who is unlikely to concede any kind of defeat because it would be a humiliation for himself. And so so that's how important this stuff is, from the iPhone to what's going on in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine. You know, status is deeply, deeply implicated in all of this stuff. So I think it's an incredibly important subject. Well, it gives, actually, by the fact you bring up Putin, it gives us a real powerful entry point into the role that status plays in history. Because I guess if the learning that the Second World War drew from the First World War is don't leave the defeated parties in a state of humiliation, um, try and sort of give them a route back to salvation. And to some extent, the, the actions of Putin, like you say, have been an attempt to win back status after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it seems to be, you know, far from sort of a, a detail, it seems to be like the defining part of these stories, really. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, you know, I, I think for, for similar reasons, it's kind of predictable that unfortunately lots of Russians are falling for the story that Putin is spinning about denazification um, uh, because you know, a, a big theme of lots of my work, even going back before the status game, is about um, irrational belief. And I think it's true that the brain is not interested in the truth. The brain is interested in status. And we tend to believe the things that flatter the sense of status of ourselves and then by inference our groups. So if people are nationalistic in Russia, which I think they are, generally speaking, um, the, 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 their brains are going to want to believe the things that flatter the status of Russia, because that, that then they personally get status, and so uh, and so that that to me is the, that that is if you want to find irrationality 
you know, find the things, find the beliefs around which people people pin their status. And if you're a nationalistic person in Russia, you, 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 you're going to believe what Putin tells you. You know, you're going to believe the stories that are in your media. So I, th- I, I think that's that 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 that's that that's an issue. Um, uh, but but I also think there's stuff that, that that there there's an argument in there that we're doing the right things in terms of the sanctions. What what you tend to find, and again, I write about this in the status game throughout history, is that is that revolutions happen when elites, especially, feel that their status is in decline for reasons that are not sort of down to them. And I think that the elites around Putin suddenly not being able to buy Cartier to go to luxury holidays to have their rarefied, westernized lifestyles. Um, I think you know it's it, it's not the solution, but I think psychologically it's good psychology, you know, because those people are informed enough and smart enough to know to not believe the stories and to know that this invasion of Ukraine is an invasion of Ukraine, and and to understand that it's being led by Putin individually. And I think if you attack their sense of sort of global status, if you, if you make them feel embarrassed to be in Saint-Tropez and uh, Dubai and all these other places, then, then that's good psychology. So I, th- so I think it is, it, is a, it is a good strategy that, 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 that we're kind of pursuing that. We're taking away their yachts and taking away their ability to kind of swank it about and act like high status people on the global stage. The the one thing that you said that really struck me, and it's directly relevant to that, is that um, our brains are hero-making machines. Our, our brains, exactly as you say there, our brains are designed to frame us as the goody. And so when we were presented with any sort of dissonance against that, it's, it's immensely jarring. But actually a healthy brain even, it's really interesting because when you use that phrase, our brains are hero-making machines, you immediately start thinking of, I immediately think of that Mitchell and Webb sketch, which is uh, they're they're sort of debating in the World War II bunker as two German SS officers, and they're debating yeah. are we the baddies? Because you know, because yeah. no one in, it's a classic, yeah, but no one in history perceives themselves to be the baddies. We no. we perceive ourselves yeah. to be doing the right thing, even if the 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 things are the evidence around us challenges that. Um, so you know, it's, yeah. it's really interesting, sort of th- these these big conflicts trying to perceive how that hero making machine is challenged. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the, yeah. So, the, so the brains are hero makers. That's what they were. They were kind of storytellers, and, and and they tell a story about the world in which we're heroic, and the groups to you know the games that we play are heroic games. Um, because what 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 the brain wants isn't to find the truth. We're not we're not born scientists. We're born status makers. We we, we want the brain wants to know. Who do I have to be and what do I have to believe in order to earn connection with these people and to earn status within them? That, that, that's what I want to know. And so that's what, it, that's, that's what it's seeking out. So, so, so we, you know, we, 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 we are kind of naturally conformist animals. You know, that, that, that's, kind of, that, that, that's our tendency. Um, you know, obviously, we don't always conform. Um, but, 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 but when we don't conform, it's often in the context of, a group, us and a group of people. So we, we end up being this rival status game and getting our status. It's not that we don't want status, it's that we want status in a different way. So so, so there are people in Russia now not conforming. There, there are kind of pacifists and people arguing against um, what's going on in Ukraine, but they've got their own little status game. Uh, 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 you know, and, and then the more they protest... Uh, you know, so the, 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 there was that very brave woman who was on the TV with the banner saying you're being mm. lied to. So she'll be a hero amongst these people. She's a very high status person among, amongst mm. that in that status game. So, 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 so yeah, we're always you know you can't think, you can't think your way out of it. Um, but, but, but what you're always doing is trying to work out who do I have to be 
in in this group of people that I'm playing this game with in order to earn status. And then you, you're always wanting to be that person and believe the things that you have to believe in order to, you know, win that status. And that's why we become so irrational because you get these kind of feedback loops, you get these groups that, that just end up believing crazier and crazier and crazier things. I mean, in the book, I, I tell the story of the, the satanic panic in the, in the 1980s where dozens and dozens of people were sent to prison for crimes which were just insane. They couldn't possibly have committed. Um, the, the idea was that there were secret networks of Satanists that were abusing children in um, kindergartens or, you know, all around the world, especially in America. And they were doing things like, they were, they, they were asking children, um, you know, what was going on. And the children were saying children things like, oh, um, they took me down into the cellar and they threw me at a shark. Uh, they flew me to Mexico uh, and buried me in a pit, you know, all this stuff that just was clearly just that made up children's stuff, like out of a Roald Dahl story, but it was believed. Um, it was believed and, and, and people went to prison for this stuff. There was never, never any evidence that any of this stuff had actually happened. Um, but it was believed and, and you know, it's, it's known as the, the satanic panic, but that, that to me was a, a classic kind of status game run amok where, um, you know, the investigators in the, in the police, uh, the, the, the kind of family therapists that were, that, that were kind of involved in all this, all of them were earning massive status. They were, they were becoming celebrities. They were earning money. Um, they were, they were on Oprah, it, you know, it, it became this huge kind of self expanding status game. And it ended up in, in, in kind of chaos and misery. And looking back on it, you think, how could people have possibly believed this stuff in, in the modern era in, in America? But, you know, you can look back on Nazi Germany and say, how did people possibly believe that stuff? And uh, for the same reasons, because it gave them status. It gave them status in, in, in 1930s mm. Germany to believe that they were all a victim of this Jewish conspiracy and it was all unfair and it was none of their doing. Tell me, like, um, I'm so interested in the impact of the last two years on status. There's, um, there's a wonderful subversive podcast by a guy called Blind Boy, which is a massive podcast in, in Ireland. And, uh, but he talked to, uh, recently on his podcast about an idea that really sort of struck me about how the office is filled with lots of symbols of status. So, you know, your boss has a room that he can decorate ha- as he wants. He's allowed to put, you're not allowed to put pictures up on your desk. Your boss is allowed to put pictures up on his desk. Oh, look, there's a picture of him on a golf day. And, and all of these things are little breadcrumbs of status that to some extent, the management class has been stripped of in the last two years. Do you, do you think that our yeah. relationship with status has evolved at all? And, and does that, does that undermine the system if it, if it has been renegotiated? That's a really good question. So yeah, in the book I write about psychology, I mean, neuroscientists call it the status detection system, this idea that we've got this incredibly, incredibly sensitive sort of kit in our subconscious minds that detects stuff like you've just described. And in, in the book I talk about, um, um, office studies, which show that, you know, like, um, people show their status by having multiple clocks it was one of them it made me laugh multiple clocks and by walking quickly with lots of folders was seen as a status symbol um and uh, they found in you know in a study that people became preoccupied with the re- relative amount of orange juice that was poured in a glass because they saw that as a status symbol so you know if you see people getting orange juice and you just get less than everybody else you're annoyed about it because your brain isn't that's not just about how much hydration i'm getting and how much vitamin c much more important is is that that's a that's a that's a you know fu isn't it you know that that's a status thing so and i, I think it's a really interesting point that that these kind of these kind of symbolizers are being removed my wife's sort of been through this she doesn't work in magazines anymore but she she spent 20 years working in magazines and when she was first an editor she had her own office 
And by the time she left um, magazines, she was just hot desking with everybody else. Um, and it bothered her. It would bother anyone, you know, not just because of the peace and quiet, because it, but it is, it's a, it's a fuck you, you know, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a sign and a symbol that you, you that, that you matter less. And I, and I think it comes from a good, pl- well, it comes from a place of saving money is where it comes from that stuff really. But, but, but the story that they tell is that it comes from a place of, we, we don't want this big hierarchy. We want everyone to feel equal and all part of the same gang. So it's, it's coming from a good place, but, but with a big, but, and, th- and that is that, that, that actually, you know, the, these things about how the managers are allowed to decorate their office, how they want, there should be rewards for success. And the, the rewards for success shouldn't just be money. Cause the, because what you end up with in that instance is just, all you get is more money if you, if you perform better. And I, I don't actually think there's anything wrong w- 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 with a certain amount of extra status rewards. Because, because quite know. often the best cultures are the ones that try to, especially, uh, you know, as I study, uh, the ones that try to articulate a sense that we're all in this together. So, you know, back to the Ukraine affair, what Zelensky is brilliant uh, evoking he's the here's me he's the minister of defense he's you know the the homeland security minister we're all on the the battlefront here we're all together and and it evokes that sense that we're all in this together and you're saying that actually what we we recognize that some degree of status is inevitable and yeah i think it's it's about balance like you definitely want to get that we're all in this together thing you know they're like like like, um the, the ideals the ideal status game kind of psychology for an organization is um so in the book i write about competition versus rivalry so competition you might think that competition is a good thing to, to foster in people because everyone's competing and trying to jump on each other's heads and, and that's going to be great for the business but actually that's not correct you know a moderate amount of competition is okay but but very quickly it becomes exhausting and zero sum so people are like People, so you've got a situation where you're coming to work and everyone's competing with everybody else. So you've got very little chance of winning. It becomes very ruthless. Nobody wants to give status to anyone else because they're jealously hoarding it for themselves. So much better is rivalry. And what I mean by rivalry is that it's one against one. So when, you're, when, you're, when, you, when you've got a rival at work, it's one person. That you, that, that you have this rivalrous relationship. You're deter- it's like, it's like um, you know Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, you know, I'm going to beat that person. And if it's one person you're trying to beat, it's manageable. You can do it. And what, what psychologists find is that, is that rivalry tends to emerge over time naturally between people who have a history of close calls and skirmishes. So, the, so, the, so, so that's your ideal rival, somebody that's very close to you. Um, and, and that also manifests on the group level. So, 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 so on a group level, what you want to, what you want to kind of manifest as an organization is, is all us against Microsoft or it's all us against you know, Garmin or whoever your, your, your rival company is, uh, you know, so, so that kind of Zelensky thing of, yes, it's us against everybody else is a, is a really great psychology to try and conjure. But it's still true that within your group, you, you want to have rewards for individual success. And, uh, and so, so I, think, I, I, think, I think a moderate amount of extra privileges, extra something for people as you go up, up, go up, the, go up the group is a good thing because it's, your group is a game and there should be clear and achievable rewards for everybody playing that game. So, 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 the, so the most healthy status games are ones where you, there's no favoritism. There's no sense of it being fixed. I know if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to win something and it's going to be status in the form of could be money, but it could be a job title. It could be, a, you know, 
a better place, a better spot in the office or a better parking space or whatever it is, you know, like maybe like two, two, two days extra off a year or whatever it is, you know, it's, it's got to be moderate because people get, you know, resentment is also a very powerful, powerful thing and it's very toxic. But, 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 but I think you can go too far in this whole um, idea that we're all in this together. And that, so that means that we all should have the same rewards because actually, no, in, in a healthy group, you get extra rewards for extra good performance. Like, I don't think it's good that magazine editors don't have their own office. That, that office is, is a sign and a symbol. And it, and it says, this is the editor. And you knock on the door and you wait and you, you're let in. And it's all those little signs and symbols. And, you know, and that's motivating for people, you know, like when you're the 23 year old uh, junior writer on the magazine, I'm going to be in that office one day. And magazines, is a, magazines are a great meritocracy. Uh, you know, in my experience, in my wife's experience, if you work hard, you will get the editor's office one day, but they've taken it away now. Nobody, nobody, nobody is the editor's <laughs> office. And I think that's a great shame. I think it's a shame that that, 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 that reward has been taken away because it is a reward. Now tell me, the first thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, I uh, woke up, to, uh, unfortunately I woke up at 4am to sort of see the alert, but um, but when I fully woke up and I saw that Will, what had happened at the Oscars, <laughs> I was uh, I was just finishing your book, uh, rereading it, I'd already had booked it before, and, uh, and I was like, oh, immediately I must go and see what you've said about this, because it struck me as an act of grandiosity. It, was, uh, it struck me that, you know, the notion of someone striding up to the stage and, and hitting someone else was such a status play and so look i'd love your take on what happened at the oscars was was status an element in that of course yeah absolutely it was all about status um so in the book as you know um there i talk about there's three different kinds of status games generally speaking three different kind of flavors of status game there's dominance there's virtue and there's success so dominance games we've been playing since before we were human that's just violence or the threat of violence bullying psychological violence all of that stuff there's virtue which is um you know you, virtue signaling I'm, I'm a good person because i follow the rules i know the rules i have the right beliefs i defend people i'm courageous all that stuff and there's success which is competence it's the elon musk i'm going to be amazing at my job and that's what's going to get me status and so what you saw um what you saw at the oscars was Will Smith felt humiliated. He felt humiliated in front of his wife and he responded with an act of dominant status. So what, 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 you know, dominance is all about. Um, I'm going to force you to attend to me with status. I'm going to, um, uh, I'm going to, yeah, um, become the top dog in this environment by, uh, with an act of force. And then what, what was interesting was after that, he, he did that kind of pathetic speech where he was, he, 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 he started arguing from virtue, saying, well, actually, it was a virtuous act. It was an act of virtue status. I was, I was defending my family. And that's what, that's what you do when you defend your family. I'm like Serena Williams' father. Uh, I'm just like him in real life too. You know? so, so, so he did this kind of craven um, argument from virtue, which, of course, is what all um, people tend to do. Humans are amazing storytellers. And, and you know, we, we've been... Um, we've had social strictures against dominance status for tens of thousands of years. You know, you know, the, the, the great story of us becoming human is a story of us um, not trying to 
stop using dominance and to use virtue and competence instead. Um, you know, dominance is obviously still with us. It's never not going to be with us, but, but we've become incredibly, um, to, to an incredible extent, less violent over the tens of thousands of years than we've been domesticating. Uh, but it's still in us, as, you, as we saw at the Oscars. And what, and what we tend to do is then tell the story from virtue. And that's what everyone does. I mean, that's what, that's what domestic abusers do. That's what um, uh, murderers do. I'm not obviously not saying that will smith is any of those things i'm just saying that this, this is a typical human behavior is, is, is that when we act with dominance we tend to we tend to try and excuse it as being a an act of virtue uh, and that's exactly what he did he didn't, and he didn't get away with it uh, as people often don't yeah i mean that's that was brilliant that's brilliant because that's exactly what i was that's what i came to your social media i was thinking i wonder if i could <laughs> so i'm delighted that you've shared it with us now but look thank you for this book it's it's such an eye-opening prompt and i think because it's so brilliantly evidenced it's hard not to come away from it you know if people are considering a summer read or it's hard not to come away with it convinced of things that maybe you'd not considered before have such a big impact on the way we live our lives. So that, thank you. I loved, I loved the book. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bruce. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your great questions today. Thank you to Will. Appreciate you coming in and sharing that. And in fact, I enjoyed the status game so much. I, I started reading his his other book, which is about storytelling. And that's uh, just a, a fascinating exploration, a sort of psychological explora- exploration of why we enjoy storytelling. That's called the science of storytelling. So if you, if you like this, you'll also enjoy that. Thank you to Will. If you do enjoy this, please do share it with uh, friends, colleagues, family. And in the coming few weeks, I'm going to be highlighting uh, some of the stuff in the run-up to the release of my new book, Fortitude. And so uh, look out for that. If you are subscribed, you'll see some of that coming up. Appreciate you listening. Thank you for, for giving us your company today. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.